Welcome to The Dynamist, a podcast by Lincoln Network. I'm Evan Schwarzstrauber. It's probably fair to say that most people don't think about global shipping and supply chains all the time. I'll borrow a line from my last episode, unless you're a massive nerd. But as in so many cases, the COVID-19 pandemic made us think about things that you don't always think about or maybe never thought about. When stores ran out of toilet paper and cleaning supplies or when people were moving and ordered a new couch and it would take six months or a year to get delivered. But that's not the crisis that started the debate about cargo transport. It definitely didn't start in February, March of 2020. It's been going on for years in policy circles in Washington, D.C. and around the country involving various powerful interests and industries on all sides of the debate. This debate goes all the way back 100 years to the Jones Act, a law that mandated that uh, vessels transporting cargo between points in the United States They had to be American-made, American-flagged, and owned and crewed by American citizens. As companies and customers alike continue to gripe about supply chain issues that are ongoing, is it time to rethink the Jones Act? Joining me to discuss this is Gabriela Rodriguez, policy advisor at American Compass, a think tank policy organization in Washington, D.C. Gabriela, thanks for joining yeah, thanks for having me. Really excited to get to talk about this super obscure topic. <laughs> well, that, that's what we do here on The Dynamist. We, we take the obscure and make it fun and interesting, of course, right? And a lot of that has to do with the host and guests, I'm sure. So thinking back 100 years, let's put ourselves in the minds of the people who wrote this act, Senator Jones and, of course, others. My understanding is that this law was a reaction to World War One, right? During World War One. We had merchant ships that were not you know, affiliated with the United States military, but they were selling, before the U.S. entered the war, they were selling arms and materials to the Allies, to you know, Britain and France. And the German submarines just started sinking them almost indiscriminately, which is one of the many reasons we, you know, there was justification for the U.S. to enter the war. And after the dust was settled, you know, in 1920, I think the U.S. was thinking – we need a very strong domestic shipbuilding industry, right? To, ke- to not only make up for the fact that they destroyed so much of it, but also to ensure that anytime there's a future war, we have this capability. Is that pretty much why they passed this law? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. So going back to 1914, World War I kicks off. And as was the custom, you had these sovereign nations suddenly turn their commercial fleets to their wartime needs. So Britain recalled its fleet, Germany recalled its fleet, France recalled its fleet. And you had a situation where the United States, which transported most of its cargo on foreign ships, realized that they were out of ships. There were hardly any American vessels that could transport commercial goods. So you ended up having, you know, the U.S., which is not even involved in the war, still suffering commercially because of it. You had goods piled up on docks. You know, at one point in 1917, we had a ton of cotton going from $0.35 cents to $6.10. Oh, my goodness. And even here, in today's dollars, like we'd feel it's a pretty significant spike. So partially as a result of that and the attacks on U.S. shipping, the U.S. realized that, hey, we might not officially be in the war, but we should still do something to build up this commercial capacity. So during peacetime, they passed a couple of measures establishing the U.S. shipping board um, that basically had the power to coordinate building new commercial ships. So everything from financing to actually operating shipyards. And then when the U.S. entered the war in 1917, you had a huge commercial sea lift to become part of the war effort. So a sea lift is basically, you know, just a large scale transportation of troops, supplies and equipment by sea. Military sea lift, typically done by military vessels. Commercial sea lift, typically done by commercial vessels. And, you know, two months after the U.S. entered the war, the first commercial sea lift went to Europe with, you know, the first transport of U.S. troops headed over there. 
So you can really see that having this commercial capacity to augment military capacity has been a significant priority since World War I. And then during the war, the U.S. Shipping Board created this corporation called the Emergency Fleet Corporation, um, which basically had the power to purchase, build, equipment, lease, charter, maintain, and operate merchant vessels in the commerce of the United States. So it was a government-run entity that was building ships to support the commercial side of the war effort. So by the end of the war, you ended up having four government-financed shipyards that produced more annual tonnage capacity, so like carrying capacity, that was found in any country before 1918. And by the time the program wound out in 1922, so like a little bit after the war ended, over 2,000 ships had been built. So if the goal was to create a domestic shipping industry, it sounds like at least immediately in the aftermath of this bill, it succeeded. So that raises the question, why are we talking about this today, right? Right. If that program kind of wound down, you know, over, over 100 years ago now, why are we talking about it today? And my, my understanding of the Jones Act debate is perhaps a little simplistic and binary, but you know, you, you go to DC policy events, you, you go to, you know, events where people are talking about their priorities. And, you know, I remember hearing a Cato Institute person who the Cato Institute is a libertarian, you know, think tank in DC, they were talking about the Jones Act, making everything more expensive, right? It, it's protectionism run amok, right? It's the worst example of a government trying to prop up a domestic industry at the expense of Americans being able to benefit from foreign competition. Now, on the other side, I basically heard if you repeal the Jones Act, it'll be a disaster for national security, we'll be subject to foreign influence, we'll, we'll be dependent on foreign ships, and if a war ever breaks out, we will be regretting you know, for the rest of our lives if we survive this terrible war <laughs> that we didn't have a domestic shipping industry. So is it essentially this debate between you know the free market folks who say, we're in a global economy, we should be able to benefit from foreign companies taking goods from a one U.S. port to another versus these much more national security-minded folks coupled with you know, the, the industries that benefit from the Jones Act? Or is there more going on? Is it not just this binary choice? I would definitely say there's a little bit more going on. So going back one more time to the 1920s, this sort of whole discussion about making things more expensive versus ensuring the U.S. had commercial capacity was present at the start of the debate around the Jones Act. Um, and basically, Senator Wesley Jones of Washington State was the one who shepherded the tiny little provision that became known as the Jones Act. And it was passed into law as part of this huge bill that became known as the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. But you know, basically, the argument was that it was a better investment to build up your commercial capacity in peacetime than to end up having some sort of crisis a war is what they pictured, that would force you to have to ramp up investment and maybe not have the men or the materials to build up the sort of capacity you needed. So fast forwarding to today, we've kind of ended up in a situation where a bill that was designed for an era before, multinational uh, corporations, massive offshoring, and the sort of really financialized economy we have has led to this sort of mess where it's difficult to determine what's made in the U.S., what's owned in the U.S., and where purely on a cost basis, it makes absolute sense to just completely outsource your shipbuilding economy. You know, everything from trying to figure out how to make steel in the U.S. to making ship to sea cranes is something that's also challenging. And it seems like this law only ever comes up when there's a reason for it to be a news story and for people to complain about it, right? Because this is just not a constant issue that gets a lot of play either, you know, on the news or in DC. Folks might remember 
discussion of the Jones Act because of the hurricanes in Puerto Rico in you know, 2017, I believe. And a lot of people in Puerto Rico were complaining that the Jones Act was making the relief effort harder, right? Because Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. So bringing goods between anywhere in the U.S., whether that's, you know, Houston or, you know, Tampa or, you know, Manhattan to Puerto Rico, you have to use these U.S. ships, U.S. crew, U.S. flag. And that just limited the supply of available ships and slowed down the relief effort. Of course, there was a waiver granted, but this is just an example of how there's a crisis and then people start talking about the Jones Act and then, you know, a waiver gets granted and then the crisis passes and they get rid of the waiver and then we don't talk about it anymore. Right. And you actually have some personal experience here. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. So you're totally right. People primarily hear about the Jones Act whenever there's a hurricane and Puerto Rico has a humanitarian crisis. So last fall after Hurricane Fiona, the conversation kicked up again. Um, And for some context, I'm Puerto Rican. I grew up hearing about the Jones Act, you know, kind of understanding it as this illogical provision that just punished the people of one island and a couple of others like Guam as well without any sort of logic behind it. You know, I've had family who've worked in the maritime industry in Puerto Rico. My grandfather was a longshoreman as well. They're really getting the sense to examine this both from the personal and the macro level has been a unique opportunity. But pulling back for a minute, I would really say that only focusing on the Jones Act when it causes a humanitarian crisis is the wrong framework. Frankly, that sort of crisis where you can't get enough ships to deliver essential goods is a byproduct of the fact that we've come to understand the Jones Act is a single standalone regulation instead of one in a whole suite of tools that the U.S. should have as part of a robust maritime strategy. I mean, frankly, being able to build ships Building more ships would ideally increase the sort of commerce that we have, would drive prices down, and would make life easier for people in places like Puerto Rico or some outlying islands like Hawaii, some places of Alaska. But we're at a situation where there's no sort of incentive or pressure to build more ships. So it only pops up as an item of discussion when there's groups suffering and they're used by outside actors like the Cato Institute to drive home their pet priorities without really stopping to think about how this sort of provision would affect the nation as a whole and what sort of higher purpose it should have. Yeah. And a lot of times they'll use kind of an absurd example to illustrate the point, which I, which I think is informative to an extent, right? So, so Cato pointed to one story a couple of years ago where the American seafoods company, right? They have to get fish from point A to point B and they're making a decision should I do a Jones Act ship? And basically, if you in the parlance that I've gathered in researching this episode, Jones Act ship refers to a ship that can comply with the law, essentially, right? So they, they refer to the ship through the regulation, which is, which is interesting in and of itself. But they're deciding, okay, should I use a Jones Act ship or should I make a largely pointless stop in another country so that I don't violate that provision, right? Because the Jones Act says... It's within two ports in the United States. If I go overseas first, I'm fine. And it was kind of an absurd example where this company loads fish in Dutch Harbor, Alaska, onto foreign ships that are then sent to New Brunswick, Canada via the Panama Canal, right? So we're going from Alaska to to Canada via the Panama Canal, then offloaded, placed onto a short stretch of railroad that apparently was all for theater. They're literally just rolling the stuff up and down the railroad tracks to make it look like they're doing something, then offload it, put it on trucks going into the US, right? So they made a decision that this pointless trip through Canada was cheaper than using a Jones Act ship 
doesn't that prove that this law is just hugely damaging, that it is so expensive to comply that people are doing these absurd workarounds? And there's this whole conversation, of course, about climate change, right? And you would think that people would would want to avoid pointless trucking or pointless use of of other uh, shipping methods if it, if there's a faster way to go about it. So if the law has failed to achieve its goal, which I think you agree with, why shouldn't we just repeal it? Like, don't we want to live in a world where when the government screws up, it just learns from their mistake and repeals it? Like, what is the downside to just getting rid of this law that is not fit for purpose? Well, I would say that specific story is a great example of a company complying with the letter of the law, not with the spirit of it. And I would point to it as another symptom of the fact that because we view the Jones Act as this regulatory burden operating in isolation, we don't have the framework or the mindset to really understand how it could ideally be fulfilled. In a sense, it's kind of like Buy America provisions where you say, oh, this is a burdensome regulation. Why would everything have to be made in America? Instead of thinking, okay, the broader end goal is good, stimulating you know, manufacturing and production in America. But to get to that point, we need additional support to make it a reality. Right. Same thing with, with the Jones Act. It has an admirable end goal, but you need additional uh, tools to make it a reality. You know, companies don't take it seriously. There's so many workarounds and loopholes and industry carve-outs. And it's kind of ridiculous, you know, realizing, oh, the law doesn't work as it should because of loopholes, which proves that we need more loopholes or a full <laughs> repeal. I just don't understand that sort of circular logic. So who benefits from this law? Right. I mean, let's set aside the national security implications because we're going to talk about that. But just from a pure kind of like lobbyist, you know, government windfall argument. Right. Is it are there American shipbuilders who benefit from this law because like they're the one stop shop for a Jones Act compliant ship? Or is it less obvious? Is it folks like truckers who like it because it reduces competition? I saw a stat in researching the show that Europe uses way more shipping by sea than by truck, which is interesting because geographically that doesn't necessarily make sense, but they just do it because it's more, it's cheaper, right? So, I mean, if you're, if you're worried about safety, right, the roads are very dangerous. There's a lot of traffic. It seems like it'd be better to do things by sea. So is it the truckers that like this law? Cause less competition from, uh, from freighters. Is it the railroads that like it? Because it makes it more attractive to transport stuff by rail, which is, of course, in the news because of what happened mm-hmm. in East Palestine. Is it simply that there are industries that benefit from this regulation and they are the ones that keep it going? Or is it more complicated than that? Yeah, I would say there's uh, three main layers to this in terms of very basic interest groups. You've got the actual industry. So, you know, whether it's like groups like the American Maritime Partnership or American Waterways Operators, these are groups that are composed of firms, employees, corporations that directly benefit from the fact that this is a requirement. There's also the labor component of it. The AFL-CIO is a strong support of the Jones Act. And you also have the congressional piece. It makes complete sense for a member who has a commercial shipyard in their district or a lot of Navy veterans or who is on a waterway to be fully supportive of this for a number of reasons. I think the real sort of weakness that comes with supporting the Jones Act blindly without considering reform is that you end up being unwilling or unable to concede that it's not fully operating as effectively as it should. Frankly, when a lot of people say reform, they really mean repeal. So I do understand that hesitancy from supporters to consider touching it. It's like if you, if you give an inch, they'll take a mile, right? Exactly. Like yeah. Maybe they would admit in a, in a vacuum that reform is better, but they're basically projecting out a fear that if I admit that there's something wrong with this law and it could be made better, that I'm going, that the end result will be the Cato 
priority, which is like, just get rid of it entirely. They're like afraid to have the conversation. Yes. You're so right. I think. Um, And another piece that's worth acknowledging is that, yeah, commercial shipbuilding is a captured industry. It, at least on the external waterways, which is what I'm mostly focused on, really does exist as an industry that only builds the few ships that are required and that has no sort of pressure to innovate or build better ships. To the truckers piece, at least, I would mention that the Jones Act was passed before the interstate highway became a common thing. And that actually has reduced the amount of cargo that is moved along waterways in the U.S. So one of the arguments in favor of the Jones Act that proponents often say is that it's good for the American shipbuilding industry, right? That it, that, it, that it achieves the goal that it set out to. But a lot of critics say, well, actually, no. If you look at how sparse, right, American shipbuilding is and how the industry relies more on trucking and railroads than other countries do, that it actually isn't even achieving the stated goal. Is it just that there are these handful of companies that benefit, that don't want to you know, expand the market because it seems like the industry itself might benefit, right? If, if we fix this and created a bigger market for shipping, is there a way that we can, you know, tweak this law to have an end result where we're making a lot of ships in America and Americans are getting more of their goods via freighters or, you know, it, it, it just seems ironic to me that if the goal was to have this robust and thriving shipping industry by sea, and that's not happening, that like, why would we continue to perpetuate this law without reform? That's a really good point. I think it, it, again, goes back to a lot of what you mentioned about being afraid to give an inch out of fear they'll take a mile. I think another thing too is it's pretty common to assume that good things just happen in a vacuum with zero government involvement. And when the fact that we've gone to the point where other countries like South Korea, Japan, and China have really captured most of the market share when it comes to building ships is realizing that there were pretty substantive government subsidies and investments made to ensure that those countries had that sort of productive capacity. The U.S. had subsidies for building ships for a while. We repealed a lot of them during the Reagan administration because, frankly, they weren't effective at ensuring the end goal, which is not just, you know, feeding a captured sector of the economy that just collects rents. It was actually, you know, intended to stimulate effective shipbuilding. Um, And since it wasn't doing that, we cut it, I would think rightly so. But there's definitely a place for some sort of, you know, government direction to make sure that you can have an effective end goal. Um, And I guess just, you know, stepping back, there's definitely a whole cottage industry of legal experts who just focus on Jones Act waivers, on navigating the different requirements, and on helping, you know, shipping companies navigate what should be a pretty straightforward provision. If I can just divert for a minute to even what constitutes as American-made, you know, at this point, for a ship to qualify as American-owned, it has to be at least 75% owned by Americans. It's the same for airlines, frankly, at least 75% owned by Americans. Um, And then when you look at the actual requirements of what on the ship needs to be made in America, it tends to be major components, and a major component is defined as something that's 1.5% steel weight. So basically big things that are on a ship, the major components, like the major hull component to the superstructure, have to be made in the country. But that totally leaves out things like marine electronics, you know, your GPS, your navigational system. Some of these technologies didn't exist 100 years ago, and having them built by a hostile power like China 
could definitely prevent a security threat that we're not even considering. So that's ironic that this law that was designed for national security, right? Because I guess it hasn't been updated. It would be you know hard to argue that purchasing a hull or like a piece of dumb infrastructure, so to speak, right? A non-electronic piece of infrastructure, that that's the thing that needs to be made in America to secure national security as opposed to the electronic systems, which we are having a massive conversation in this country right now about where we get our electronics. And uh, lest you think, uh, listener, that this has strayed from being a tech policy podcast, we are now going to bring that in because the U.S. recently had this huge bill called the CHIPS Act. And I know you've written about this. You've worked, you've worked on this to an extent. And the goal here was basically kind of similar to the Jones Act, but for semiconductors, right? We, we decided as a country that semiconductors, right, the the all important technology that, you know, is in everything from our iPhones to our computers, to our cars, to basically everything these days that we can't just be totally reliant on other countries for that, given the important national security implications, right? It is very much framed as kind of like a pro-America anti-China bill. And this comes at a time when America really is rethinking the role of government in the economy. I, I think it's fair to say for a few decades, you know, the quote unquote moderate wing of the Democratic Party, you know, Bill Clinton types were largely in agreement with the pro-business wing of the Republican Party that more globalization, more trade, allowing companies to offshore manufacturing, this would reduce the price of goods and it would benefit the country overall. And not just because of COVID and increasing hostilities with China, but also we're having a lot of politicians being very concerned about the hollowing out of manufacturing in middle America and what that does to towns and what it does to mental health and job opportunities for blue collar workers, et cetera, right? This, this whole conversation is happening. Do you see the Jones Act as potentially being a piece of that conversation, right? You just mentioned that Japan, South Korea, and China are heavily subsidizing their shipbuilding industries. So even if we were to repeal the Jones Act in theory, we're not operating on a level playing field because we would be at a disadvantage in a quote unquote free market. We're at a disadvantage already because these three companies are subsidizing their ships. So could the Jones act be another avenue for American industrial policy? So I'm really glad you mentioned those points and sort sort of started mentioning the current um, geopolitical challenges that happen in the Pacific. Um, We're at a point where the U S is actively moving to decouple from China in certain sectors, as the CHIPS Act demonstrated. But on the flip side, you also have a you know commerce secretary that's out there saying that we should not decouple from China. We're not actively pursuing that. And we're not even looking for a technical decoupling. We're just competing in certain sectors. Yeah, when which is you- interesting to give those mixed messages when we're banning Huawei and ZTE from our broadband networks and we're potentially going to ban TikTok, right? It sounds like the administration's trying to maybe have it both ways. Yeah, that's true. You know, just really on the commercial front, if something happens and we can't ship basic goods from wherever they're manufactured to the country, that's going to cause a huge crunch. I mean, we already saw over COVID how shipping disruptions could really throw things off for a lot of people, both, you know, being able to get your couch from abroad to some critical components that we needed for building cars. So I think that really having the chance to think about the Jones Act both in the context of a way to ensure economic sovereignty, but also as part of these broad strategic challenges, is the right approach. And I mean, I'm sure some of you may have heard already, but China's actively considering their commercial naval capacity as a critical part of their military capacity as well. The United States uses that as well. We haven't done so in a while. Actually, the Chinese have been investing in what they call roll-on 
you know, roll off vessels, so dual use ships where you can just roll on a military transport, roll them off. The ship can go back to its regular job as a ferry or a commercial transport. So the lines between a, you know, the military and the commercial sector continue to blur in China. And perhaps, you know, even if it makes us uncomfortable as a free society, we may need to start thinking about our commercial shipping sector in the context of a potential military conflict, just as they did 100 years ago. Absolutely. And one thing I do want to point out, I've heard folks argue that, you know, modern militaries don't use the same sort of seal of capacity that private commercial vessels do. And I think China's example definitely proves that you can design commercial military vessels with dual uses in mind. And that, you know, even in a U.S. context, they could completely be built by a private corporation and the government happens to borrow them in times of conflict. It doesn't mean that they'd have to be government owned. So you have a view on this issue that doesn't neatly fit into the kind of two buckets that I'm more familiar with, which is like repeal the Jones Act. It's terrible. It makes everything expensive. And it's, you know, leading companies to do these absurd workarounds. Or, yeah, the Jones Act is critically important for national security. And if we don't have it, we're just going to have like foreign ships in all our ports putting our people out of business and it'll be a disaster the next time disaster strikes. Let's say there's a middle option. We love that here at Lincoln Network Nuance, right? (laughs) What would, if you had your druthers, right? Like if you could, you know, write the legislation or if you could just hand a list of bullet points to folks in Congress and say, don't repeal it, don't perpetuate the status quo, here's what I would do. What would that be? Going back to the start of the conversation, I think the Jones Act still has, you know, a very valuable set of goals supporting domestic shipbuilding and ship repair capacity, supporting a, a US controlled commercial fleet that can supplement the military sea lift. And then supporting the merchant marine workforce to actually crew that sea lift if it's needed. Um, so any sort of solution to the Jones Act crisis has to help achieve its end goal while acknowledging that the reality, both economic and in terms of workforce, has changed from when the act was originally passed. So I would say there's a couple of policy options that Congress could deploy that have precedent and that are somewhat in inspired by things that recent legislators have sponsored in the past few years. But just running through the options quickly, I would say that the U.S. could create some sort of maritime investment corporation to fund shipbuilding and domestic waterway modernization, like expanding civilian ports if needed. You could build a national shipyard that's federally administered to build critical commercial vessels like LNG tankers. And um, that's LNG's liquefied natural gas. Exactly. Yeah. You could even update the Jones Act to reflect modern supply chains and defense priorities, you know, including some sort of local content requirements so that, you know, electronics have to be 50% made in the U.S. or come from a friendly nation instead of potentially a foreign adversary. And then streamlining any sort of humanitarian aid that overlaps with the Jones Act. So if one thing I wanted to raise with you is this idea that many proponents of the Jones Act or folks who are skeptical of reform have said, it's fine because whenever disaster strikes, we just grant waivers and everything's fine, right? But you know, the, the free market part of my brain says that, you know, just granting waivers here and there, you know, for disasters is not actually going to change the marketplace, right? So the the US shipping industry or others are not going to really adjust and invest based on hurricane season, right? There needs to be actual tangible reform. And if the reform is still this idea that like we're, we're still you know trying to promote domestic shipping, et cetera. Is there a risk that the end result of reform is that we've fixed a few things and we've made it a little better and we've 
updated the law to reflect how ships are made today versus how they're made 100 years ago. But at the end of the day, Puerto Ricans are still paying too much for goods. Hawaiians are still paying too much for goods, right? Do we essentially just have to accept, or do the folks who are negatively impacted by this, do they have to accept a level of economic harm in exchange for national security? Is that essentially the, the end game here? I really don't think the end game is punishing a few people so that the entire country can be safer. And I think that when the debate is framed that way, that's really disingenuous. You know, frankly, the Jones Act is supposed to work as a brace to encourage funding to flow to build more ships. If we have more ships along certain routes, goods should be cheaper. So I really don't see any sort of conflict between making sure that the U.S. actually builds ships that are Jones Act compliant and improving the quality of life for folks in outlying islands or places like Hawaii. So to me, it seems like wanting to ensure the Jones Act works as it should completely should help fulfill that sort of goal of improving folks' quality of life as well. My last question, uh, are you worried that your uh, changing opinion on the Jones Act from your childhood is going to piss off your relatives? (laughs) I think that's a great question. Um, Honestly, more ships means more commerce, means more shipments to the port of San Juan, so it means more work. And Puerto Rico can always use some sort of economic revival, I think, so I think this would be a net positive if it went through. All right. It sounds like you can uh, you can make this nuanced argument and possibly avoid pissing off your entire family. Uh, I look forward to you threading that needle. Gabriella, thank you so much for joining. Where can folks uh, read your great work on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. So you can read more about American Compass or work in our mission at AmericanCompass.org. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at uh, GNRodriguez2. You can also shoot me an email if you'd like. And happy to talk with anyone about industry, workforce questions, or the Jones Act. Great. Well, I will link to your uh, post about the Jones Act in the show notes for today's episode, as well as your Twitter and as well as the American Compass website. Thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. Find this podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. Please leave a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for listening.